DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Time to talk a little basketball with Oliver Maroney. He covers the NBA and the Big Three, host of the Positionless Podcast. The Big Three's coming to Salt Lake City. Oliver joins us now on the Sprint Special Guest Line. Get $100 off the redesigned Apple Watch 4 with a new line of service. Visit local Sprint store near you. Oliver, good morning. Good morning. How are you guys? Good. So the dust is settling after NBA free agency and trades triggered by free agency and leverage and impending free agency. So a lot of teams can be complimented for making big moves, bold moves, good moves, but they can't all win. Who's going to win in the West? Not the whole thing, but just come out of the West. Who's the favorite? Uh, I think you have to put the Clippers up there at the top. I mean, they have you know a guy who just willed his team to a championship in Kawhi Leonard, and you add a guy like Paul George to that that already kind of hungry, gritty, kind of blue collar esque team in in the Clippers, uh, who retain and keep basically everybody from that that playoff roster aside from. Gallinari and uh, Shea Gilders Alexander. Um, you know, I think I think that they are probably the favorites going into the season. However, there is a ton of teams out there. I mean, if the Lakers can get it going, if LeBron and Anthony Davis can stay healthy, it's a big if. But uh, if they can, then that's another possibility. The Rockets. Nobody really knows what the heck is going to go on with the the Westbrook and Harden situation. I I think looking at it. Um, now it looks a little bit odd just because of how ball dominant both of them have been, and they're they're literally the highest usage rate rated players. Uh, it, it basically in NBA history, the two of them. So to pair them together is quite a questionable call. But at the same time, maybe Maury has something that we don't know, or knows something that we don't know about these two. They do have the off the court relationship. So I, I think those three teams. Um, kind of stand out just because of the moves that they made uh, and how much they gave up to make those moves. But um, then you look down the list. I mean, there's Utah's right up there. Uh, I think you look at Denver, obviously, returning basically everybody that they had and getting a, a potentially healthy Michael Porter Jr. Portland is another team that, that you know made a small move with the Hassan Whiteside trade, so maybe they get a little bit better who knows but uh there is a wide open western conference and it is going to be extremely competitive and i really don't know uh nobody can really pinpoint it so when you say it's going to be extremely competitive and wide open most folks would say absolutely oliver i totally agree with you and we talk about the players so much as you've just done you named a bunch of guys changing teams and whatnot i'm wondering now with expectations we can go six, seven deep to think that they have a legitimate shot to get into the Western Conference Finals, and then we'd see about you know from there who they're playing and, and the NBA Finals when it gets there. But my thought is, you mentioned all the players, as I say, my thought is how much pressure now is on these individual coaches, a guy like Quinn Snyder and D'Antoni and on and on, because these teams have made these dramatic moves and now are expected to win. I think it depends on the fit and the situation. You know, I mean, you talk about Quinn Snyder. He's been there with Utah for a few years now, obviously. Has held that realm. People regard him very highly. Um, And Utah has, you know, either achieved expectations or overachieved to the expectations in years past. So with this new kind of situation, you you go out and get a guy like Mike Conley, 
Um, I, I don't think the pressure's necessarily on him. I, I, I don't think at least this year. You look at a guy like D'Antonio, yeah, that seems a little bit different. They fired basically his entire coaching staff aside from himself. Um, they go out, they get Chris Paul just a couple of seasons ago. It, quote-unquote, didn't work in a lot of cases, and I, that would be what a lot of people would say. Um, but, you know, you go out and make a move like this, that's not only D'Antoni, but that's Daryl Morey's uh, job on the line. Uh, he's put it right out there. I mean, they've traded away all their future assets for Russell Westbrook and gotten rid of, you know, a pretty decent player in Chris Paul. So I, I think if you look down the list of Western Conference teams, there is more pressure, but it depends on the situation and, and what has gone on. You know, Houston historically has been a team over the past three to four seasons that we've expected to be in the Western Conference Finals and hasn't necessarily made that push uh, except for just a couple of seasons ago. Whereas with Utah, I think, you know, a, a lot of the general NBA fan, uh, fans expect Utah to be anywhere between, you know, that four through eight range. Uh, you talk about Donovan Mitchell's rookie year and where they were anticipated to sit and they make the playoffs. And um, I, I think you just look at that narrative. It's just much different. So I, do I think there's pressure? Of course. Every single coach in the NBA is going to have pressure, but in, in Utah's situation, I don't think there's as much as maybe a, a team like Houston. It seems like the West teams all improved while the East teams got worse. Maybe Philly can make an argument that they improved, but did the top three or four teams in the East all take a hit? I don't think so. I think Milwaukee, you know, you look at uh, losing Malcolm Brogdon, but still ret- retaining everybody else, getting a guy like Wesley Matthews in the locker room. Um I think they've done pretty well with what they had and what they had to work with. Uh, so they're going to be maybe not as good, but they'll be close to as good, I think. I, I think you know a guy like George Hill has been kind of waiting for that opportunity to potentially play a few more minutes. Um, they've got other guys, Pat Connington, and younger guys that can develop and grow. So wouldn't be surprised if, if they're right where they were last year, you know, number one in the East, potentially. Toronto obviously takes a step back. Um yeah, I think Philly's probably the only one you can make the argument on paper right now that has improved uh, just based on the fact that, you know, you you have, I think, a more balanced approach to their offense um, and hopefully uh, a guy in Al Horford that can kind of stabilize that locker room. See, I, I back to the pressure thing, I disagree with you to an extent because I think with all these teams expected to win or hoping to win, particularly at the start of the season, if they're looking at uh, all of a sudden, you know, 25 games into it and whatever it would be, they've got 13, 14 losses. I think that those teams, even if they're not expected to win at all, they're still expected to win 50. And I think there's going to be a ton of pressure on these guys. We saw it last year with with Houston. And then, you, of course, you talk about changing coaches. So in my mind, if any of these teams – that we're expecting to be good, get off to slow starts, these guys are going to feel it big time. Yeah, I think any coach in a scenario like that where you lose a lot of games early is going to be under pressure. It doesn't matter even if you're you know, potentially not even a playoff team or expected to be in the playoffs. I think there's always going to be pressure. Um, but I do think that the, the best front offices stick and ride through uh, rough patches um, better than others. So um, I think... I can't recall the last time, but, you know, you used maybe Portland Trailblazers as an example a couple of seasons ago where they lost 
they were they were under 500 uh, going into the All Star break or just around that area and tore off like 20 25 wins um, to end the season. And the, you know the rumblings were very non-existent to be honest about Terry Stotts or that coaching staff you know getting fired or getting changed. And I think that comes down to obviously trust in your your front office and your ownership, um, and then also trust with the players. You know, if they, if they sit down with the players and the players like the coach and the coach is doing the right things and they're just not winning, you know, if they were losing close games, um, that, that yeah, I, I think it just really depends on the situation. But, uh, you know, a, a team like Utah, I wouldn't be shocked to hear, hey, they lose a few games early and the hot seat, is, you know, Quinn Snyder's on the quote-unquote hot seat. But I, I would be surprised if the front office pulled a trigger like that or even tried to put that narrative out there. Um, because in my opinion, I think they've done a very good job at kind of uh, riding the ship. And I think that's really important when you're in this new era of NBA is to not be, you know, um, reactive, but be proactive about what's going on. And when you have a coach that's maybe struggling or a team that's struggling, let them ride it out and see what happens in the next few months. It's not going to... I don't think affect team morale or camaraderie or uh, how the team is built. So uh, that's my personal opinion and take on it. But um, I can definitely see that there are front offices out there that love to to pull the trigger and and (laughs) fire coaches left and right because we've seen it. If the Rockets or Lakers change coaches, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I could totally see the pressure in those situations. If the Clippers or the Jazz or the Warriors changed, I'd be surprised. I wouldn't think Denver and Portland, I don't know. I, I don't understand. Does anyone really know who's running the show and calling the shots and what the long-term plan is in Portland? I mean, their owner passed away, and now what's the, what's the game plan for the next five or ten years? I, I don't know where that's going. Yeah, I think Neil Olshay is uh, pretty much calling the shots. I mean, obviously, if it's going over the cap to get somebody, I, I think that that's a communication between him and uh, Paul Allen's wife. Um, but for the most part, you know, Neil, Neil Olshay is probably calling a lot of the shots and doing a lot of these things. And I think what's interesting, you mentioned, you know, uh, Houston, L.A. These are teams that historically have underachieved to what the expectations are. And so they're antsy to get something going. Whereas with Utah, Denver, uh, even the Clippers to an extent, um, Portland, uh, they've typically overachieved. So um, I, I think... I think when you look at that scenario and situation, yes, there is pressure because the front office doesn't also want to get fired at the same time. They want to try and <laughs> make a case to keep their jobs as well. So I think you have that as well going for you and going against you if you're in those two markets, you know, Houston, L.A., uh, even Philadelphia. You know, if that somehow doesn't work, you know, they've they've kind of underachieved in the, in the sense that they went out and got all these players and, and star players and, you know, starting five-wise, I think on paper, people would say Philadelphia was one of the top two, three, four teams in the NBA, and they, they didn't look like it in the playoffs. So um, that's where I think the the uh, the situation occurs, where you get these coaching firings and kind of quick-trigger um, instances is because of that pressure immediately and the pressure that's been felt over the years. So you look at four teams in the West who made big moves. The two L.A.s, Houston, and I think you put the Jazz in that category also as making significant offseason additions to their roster. And then you've got Portland and Denver, 
who were very good last year, right? And, you know, they played in the playoffs, and Portland obviously won, gets to the conference finals. So you got six solid teams minimum. But in my mind, and then and I'm not even talking about the Warriors, and, you know, the Warriors are probably going to be competitive themselves. Uh, in my mind, they all can't be great. If you had to pick one or two who maybe along those underachieving lines and themes that you were just saying, who would it be? That's tough. Um, underachieving out of those teams, you think, you think they'll underachieve to their expectations? Yeah, yeah. If they're because you're expecting seven teams to meet or exceed expectations, that yeah. seems like a lot. Yeah, I think if there's a team that may st- take a step back early on, at least, I think Portland's one of them. Uh, you know, you look at the guys that they got rid of in this in this deal to get Whiteside. You know, Whiteside's kind of a lightning rod. Um, we don't really know how he's going to perform or how he's going to look in Portland. Not saying it won't work because historically, you know, Neil Olshay, there's a few other GMs out there that have proven me wrong on a number of cases. <laughs> but um, you look at Hassan Whiteside and what he's been able to do the past couple of seasons, what he's caused in Miami, um, how unplayable he's been at times. Uh, I think that's that's a situation where they've get, gotten rid of Mohawk West, they get rid of, you know, Myers Leonard, um, they've lost a few pieces over the years, and I do think that that's going to add up, especially because you look at how they got to the Western Conference Finals in the first place. It was on depth. Not just Damon CJ, but you know the guys that were rotating on, on players defensively, um, giving Oklahoma City a tough time. Uh, I, I think really uh, those are key pieces. You know, They lose Alfaro Camino, another guy that's been very, very good on the wing defensively, uh, playing threes and fours can switch and rotate pretty well, defensively at least. And um, so they lose a bunch of players on that team. So that that would be a team that I would pick, you know, not potentially to underachieve, but if there was one currently that I could see, you know, be in that category, I I think Portland could be there. Um, You know, another team that I think would probably be in that category too, just because we don't know of the health of LeBron James and Anthony Davis over the course of this next season. The Lakers could be there. You know, the Lakers could win – 48, 49 games, they'd still make the playoffs, but I'd still say that's underachieving to what they have. I mean, I think their roster, specifically with those two players, should be a 50-plus win team. And if they're not there, then they'd be considered underachieving, in my opinion, as well. Doesn't seem, though, like the Lakers and Warriors just have to, because I'm buying what you're saying about their health, but they just have to be healthy for the playoffs. If they're in the playoffs and they're healthy, when you have a star and you got championship experience, you immediately become the team nobody wants to play, don't you? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I don't think I'd want to play them in the playoffs either. I mean, if you were picking between the Lakers and maybe the Nuggets, I think you'd rather play the Nuggets. And that's, you know, <laughs> can't believe I'm saying that because we really don't know what this Lakers team looks like on, uh, on the court. But, you know, I, I think Anthony Davis and LeBron James at the peak – uh, are scarier duo than anybody else in the NBA, essentially. So um, if you've got to play those guys in a playoff series, I don't know how you match up or guard both of those guys. And then you throw in Danny Green potentially on the outside, and even a guy like Jared Dudley. Um, they have shooters. They've surrounded them w- with guys that can shoot the basketball, which is a good thing because they haven't historically done that. And I think that's the right approach, especially to a LeBron James led team so 
You're right. No, I absolutely think that, you know, the Lakers are probably the scarier team to face in the playoffs. However, we just, it, it seems like every single season we have an Anthony Davis injury. And that's no knock on Anthony Davis. It's just he's never really been fully healthy for an entire season um, that I can recall. And, you know, I, yes, every player has knacks and injuries, but uh, at his size, uh, it, it is a little bit uh, scary and perplexing as to what ends up happening this next season. And around in our community, perception matters so much as how we're perceived by the outside world, and there's always a little bit of a chip. You know, nobody respects us and believes in us and all that. And so we saw that last year with the Gobert thing, a defensive player of the year, and he doesn't make the all-star team, and, and he gets emotional and all that, and people say, see, aha, nobody believes and respects is what we do. So it's it's important to the folks around here who are lifelong Jazz fans and so now we get Gobert with the second time winning the second consecutive defensive player of the year. So my thought is this year coming into it, even though it's several months ahead, it matters to the folks around here. Are we finally going to have an all-star from the Jazz? Yeah. I mean, I, I still think that he's going to be regarded very highly. I think that he's one of the better all-around players in the NBA. I think defensively, obviously, you talked about it, but um, – I think for Utah, uh, the sky is the limit for this team this year. I do think that they are a championship favorite, in my opinion. Um, I think that you add a guy like Mike Conley to the mix with with Donovan Mitchell, um, and that it, people don't really understand the extent of what Mike Conley does for this Utah Jazz team. And, and people looked at the trade and thought, wow, that's a lot to give up for Mike Conley, the contract. You can go on and on and on. However, if you look at what the impact will be, and I anticipate it being, um, I think you know, getting some of the burden off of Donovan's shoulders offensively and moving that towards a guy like Mike Conley, who has improved his three-point shot and is still one of the best defenders, um, I think, in a backcourt in the NBA, uh, and you add those two things together, specifically in a playoff series, and you're going to get um, that combination that you don't see very often in the NBA where it is a guy in Donovan Mitchell who can score at will. And, you know, to be honest, coming into the the NBA, his his biggest plus was his defensive ability. Uh, I think that his, his defense in college and, and in previous stints, you know, that he had um, that that's what his goal was as a player was to play, uh, extremely good isolation, one-on-one defense, uh, could switch, um, but was very, very good defensively. And I think people have lost sight of that because of the way that the, the Jazz have had to use him offensively. Uh, so when you add this Mike Conley to the mix, I, I think that they are going to be much improved in the backcourt. And then you throw Gobert into the mix, which we were just talking about, Um I I really think that Gobert has a higher ceiling um, than last season uh, or potentially otherwise because of this move. Uh, I think Conley is going to make this team overall operate better, and I, I think you're going to see that specifically with Donovan Mitchell and with Rudy Gobert. Oliver, you also uh, cover the big three. It's coming to Utah July 27th. So who's playing? What's the format here? What are people going to see if they show up? 
Yeah, so tons of great players. Um, really, the format is it's a three-on-three basketball league founded by Ice Cube, and it's um, you'll have three games back-to-back-to-back, uh, to back to back, so you get three games for the price of one. Um, and, you know, you got legends, coaches, uh, that, you know, name you, pick, pick and name the guys that you want, but I believe Joe Johnson will be in town, so former jazz man Al Jefferson. Um, you, you've got just a, an array of former NBA players, uh, players that may have not lived up to the expectations of the uh, or had career-ending injuries at one point in time. Um, but basically, uh, we've got hard-nosed three-on-three basketball, three games back-to-back-to-back. We've got a four-point shot. There's hand-checking. If you like 80s and 90s basketball, I think this is kind of the nostalgic feel of that. You know, you, you really get a feel and sense um, for just the physicality uh, of the game again. And so um, you'll see a bunch of great players play, but uh, it really, it, it's an entertaining style of basketball. It's the, the most played sport it, it, style of basketball in the world. And, um yeah, it's it's a fun time. So Utah fans will will definitely enjoy it. There's a ton of former Utah Jazz players, um, great legends of coaches: Gary Payton, Lisa Leslie, uh, Nancy Lieberman. Uh, gosh, I could go down the list: Michael Cooper, Charles Oakley. Um, all those guys coach teams. Uh, and then you've got great players, as I mentioned: you know, Al Jefferson, Joe Johnson, um, Rashard Lewis, Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf, uh, uh, Mario Chalmers bunch of names that you would recognize if you're an NBA fan or have followed the NBA for a while and uh, it's just a really fun time. Oliver we appreciate a few minutes thanks for joining us. Thanks very much.